Okay. <clears throat> um, today's the 30th, right? Is that correct? Okay, so somebody help me real quick here. We've got tonight, and then in April, we've got one Wednesday. We won't be here in April because we will be meeting here for communion the next night, Monday, Thursday service. So um, assuming we have four Wednesday nights in April, we'll have three that will be here. So counting tonight's four. And then we have, I think, just two in May. So you got a calendar in front of you? What, what's... <laughs> yeah, there's no electronic device. <laughs> yeah. But are there, how many Wednesdays are there in April? Therefore, okay. So we've only got, counting tonight, six. What I want to do is um, finish on Methodism tonight and its leap across the Atlantic to America along with then the um, rise of America and the explosion of um, different denominations and so forth um, here in America, and then, then that's where we'll try to conclude, okay? So anyway, <clears throat> well, let's pray. We'll pick up where we left off last week. We started on uh, Methodism. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the chance to be here place to meet that you've provided for us. You've been good to us. And we thank you for your faithfulness and the truth that we are privileged to know. Be with us, we pray, in our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, last week we looked at um, the Wesleys, John and Charles, talked a little bit about their upbringing, which was probably unusual um, in the sense of being good, and how they were trained, um, <clears throat> which I think had a clear um, impact on how God used them. Um, I've already confessed to being uh, pro-Methodist, um, but I can still be objective, sort of. Um, I don't think there's been, and I'm not exaggerating, okay? Personally, I don't see two, you'd almost have to go back to the apostles to find a set of brothers who had a worldwide impact like John and Charles Wesley. Um, in the setting of, to this very day, um, the Wesleys and Methodism, uh, even in spiritually dead England, is w widely known. Every, yeah, everybody knows the Methodists. Everybody knows the Wesleys. Wesleys are... Um, you know, there in Westminster Abbey, the, where you've got, you know, dead kings and all these people, and there's, you know, statues or whatever. <clears throat> John and Charles Wesley go to Oxford. 
the church there built, I think, in the 1100s. And there's a great big diamond black um, black may, uh, marble that John and Charles Wesley ordained um, here to the ministry and gives their separate dates. Uh, Charles was, what, three years younger. Um, <clears throat> and in London or Oxford, you go by, just go by a building. Embedded in the side of the building is a um, big plaque, picture of John Wesley preached in this building. Um, they, and then the Methodist Church um, spread to America where it probably, it was, Methodism was hugely successful in England. It was triple that here. Um, and <clears throat> we'll get into some reasons I think that was the case. But at any rate, spread around the world. Up until, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 15 years ago or 20, um, the Methodist Church was, was the largest in America. Um, but, and we'll get into it later. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But, you know, they've gotten away from the truth, and so they are... Um, decaying, <clears throat> which seems that every group does. But at any rate, um, it was an unusual time even in world history. And I think I might have mentioned last week that it was, a, it was also a time in a, in a lot of different countries of um, the rise of what would you call it? I don't really know the term. There is a term, but I just don't know what it is. For governments that are still monarchies, but parliamentary, um, like England. You have a figurehead. Uh, uh, they still have the monarch, but they don't really have, really have any way, any kind of authority. When you get into the early 1700s, the monarchy had authority. But even in that century in Europe, a lot of monarchies weren't necessarily toppled, but they, their real power was taken away by a parliamentary system or something like it. Um, <clears throat> and almost always that was accompanied by not only one, but maybe more um, revolutions. I mean, blood in the streets over something like that. One of the few that didn't have that was England. Now, they had uprisings and whatever else, but um, I mentioned that just across the channel, English Channel, 40 miles across, the French had the French Revolution. Um, of course, that's the century of the American Revolution. Um, <clears throat> England had a revival. France had the bloodiest revolution that Europe had known just across the channel. Radical difference um, in which one nation turned to God and the other nation virtually expunged the idea of God from their culture, which is still the same today. Uh, and the Wesleys were singularly responsible for uh, that turnaround in England. So we looked at um, 
<clears throat> their early upbringing, their education, they both went to Oxford, both ordained. Uh, their dad, Samuel, was a minister. Um, Wesley came, they both came over here to America to be missionaries to the Indians and were spectacular failures. Um, ended up going home um, pretty crestfallen as far as what they were really, what was the deal? Well, both of them had for some years been ordained clergymen in the Church of England but knew nothing about having Jesus live in your heart, being soundly converted, or as Jesus calls it, being born again. They knew nothing of that, which is stunning. Um, administered communion every Sunday and did preached and buried the dead and all that stuff. Um, did not know what it meant to know God. So in um, 1738 was when John Wesley um, was converted. And uh, about a week, I think it was later, um, his brother Charles was converted. They began to, Wesley, um, somewhere in that time, I believe, was back at Oxford where he was a lecturer um, and he had a master's from Oxford, um, taught logic. But at any rate, during that time, um, as clergymen, they could preach. And there was a lot of interchange as far as um, I could go, if I was a Church of England then, Church of England ordained clergyman, I could go, you know, there were churches and cathedrals and basilicas and chapels, depending on the size and all that, everywhere. And I could just go to, well, there's one not far from um, Oxford, I think, St. Martin's in the Fields or whatever. I could just go there and talk to the rector of that church and say, you know, uh, could I hold a service? When are you holding services on Sunday? Well, we got to do such and such, such, but we have nothing Sunday night. Can I use, could I, I'm a clergyman at Church of England. Could I preach here tonight? Sure. Um, and so they began uh, in London to, um, they started preaching what to many people was a brand new teaching. And that was that you could know in your heart that you were a Christian and you could know your sins had been forgiven. You could know that you'd ask Jesus to forgive you and to come into your heart and received that peace and joy that comes from knowing it. Now to us, hopefully, we don't see that as a irregular or weird. They did. Um, remember, can you remember from last week I touched on what deism is, being a deist, which was the bulk of people in the Church of England, but also the bulk of uh, American religion prior to, um, there's great exceptions, but prior to the Revolutionary War. Most of the founders and the leaders um, the signers of the Declaration of Independence and so forth, were deists. Now, anybody remember what a deist is? Anybody? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no question that God is the creator, God's real. They didn't question, they weren't atheistic or anything like that. Uh, clearly they were theists, they believed in God. But they believed that God was uh, a meticulous creator, created us, created the world, created all these things. But like a master watchmaker, um, wound it all up by his sets of physical laws and pretty much absented himself from the daily grind of humanity. So he's a far off God. He set in motion both moral laws, um, natural laws. You'll notice that the founders use the term nature's God. Um, it was a little more, um, it was acknowledgement of creation, but as far as a God who talks to us and gave us a conscience and um, is involved in our everyday lives, the God who knows when a sparrow falls in his whole of creation uh, that Jesus described, the deists didn't buy that. Um, and so the both in America and in England, when the Wesleys and George Whitfield uh, began to preach that you could know you were a Christian. There, there could be a time when you knew you became a Christian. Not baptism, not, but when your sins were forgiven, you repented of your ways, and you asked God to come into your heart. Um, they immediately labeled the Wesleys and Whitfield enthusiasts, okay? That was the 1700s insult um, of being a fanatic, okay? So they were fanatics. They were nut, nut jobs. So I just happened to read today in Wesley's journal where he, he preached in some place in one of the churches. <clears throat> he said, I'm quite certain I will not be invited to preach ever here again. <laughs> um, that was the case where... Um, all over the country, but God had his hand in it. Whitfield graduated from Oxford, George Whitfield, with Wesley, ordained clergyman. Same thing, didn't know the first thing about being saved and knowing he was a Christian, but got converted. Um, and so these guys were just routinely, you know, crossed off the list in church after church after church where they would never let them uh, preach in that building again. Well, it forced them. It forced them into something that I don't have any question God schemed to do. It was called field preaching. When we were in England a couple years ago, there was, uh, Wesley had a church built. It was called Wesley Chapel. <clears throat> and probably a mile down this, now, of course, four-lane four busy downtown street, was a what had been a park called Moore's Fields, okay? And they would, Whitfield and the Wesleys, would preach in that huge city park. And they would preach to thousands of people, literally. Well, they, no church could have ever held that. So it was a blessing in disguise that the churches would say, you guys are nuts, We're, you're not gonna let you preach in here anymore forced them out, then all the common people would gather, and it ended up turning England around morally, okay? Now, <clears throat> um, 
there's two things I want to look at um, for, uh, in a row here. First, the message that Wesley, the Wesleys and what became Methodism um, advanced, and then the methodology. Okay? Both are critical. Um, the doc, what, what did Wesley preach as a doctrine? Now, Wesley was thoroughly or, orthodox, meaning you know, he didn't have any wacky new doctrines. It wasn't all the cults that we have today. They always claim some brand new, recently discovered truth, and they're the only ones that have got it. And everyone else is going to the hot place. Um, <clears throat> the Wesleys, of course, people thought they were nuts, and some of them accused them of preaching new doctrines, but they, they lined up with the Church of England to a T, so they really ran out of gas. The bishops and the archbishops that were trying to, at times, shut them up. They could show, we're, we're preaching nothing but what the Church of England doctrinal 39 articles of faith teaches. So, you know, we're not, we're not off. Um, <clears throat> but there's, there's maybe four here. One, of course, I mentioned that they were Arminians as opposed to Calvinists, which meant that um, the Wesleys firmly believed in free will. Um, not that, that they did not believe in predestination. Um, as a side note, their good friend and fellow Oxford graduate um, and clergyman George Whitfield separated from them <clears throat> some years later because Whitfield um, became a Calvinist. I mean, he bought into predestination and, and that, that, you know, three of you in this, car, this group here picked to go to heaven. You're going to get saved. There's nothing you can do about it. It'll just happen. And all the rest of you are going straight to hell, and you got it coming, so quit griping. Um, and you deserve it anyway. And so, and, and if you don't want to go to hell, that's tough. You're going because there's nothing you can do about it. One wonderful doctrine, okay? Um, the Wesleys um, preached, you know, viciously against that miserable doctrine. Um, and along with it then um, is, of course, what we would call universal salvation, not universalism that all will be saved, but uni the, the plan of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, um, and your heart changed is available to every breathing human being on the face of the earth. God loves every one of them. He appeals to every one of them. The, it's the whosoever will of the scripture. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, shall, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, the alternative is just a blot on God, as far as I'm concerned. It's a slander against God. But at any rate, so the Wesleys were really strong, free will people. Now, um, <clears throat> and I, I don't want to get too far into some i got to explain some of these doctrines, but the second major doctrine the wet, that is um, was a ground cornerstone of the Wesley's preaching and a Methodist doctrine is prevenient. Um, everybody can spell that. It's P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. It literally means prevenient grace. 
It simply means the grace that goes before. In other words, it's God's, uh, one definition of, preve- of grace period is unmerited favor. Simplest way to put it is the kind of people we are, he ought to be against us, but he's for us. That's a real good, simple definition of grace. That God has every right to be against us, but he's for us. Gave his son to die for us. Now, prevenient grace then means this. That we all believe that when the human race in the persons of Adam and Eve sinned, we lost the knowledge of God. We lost our free will. We lost everything that we had in created righteousness. Okay? But in a restricted, narrow window, God restored some abilities to us, such as the ability to choose, to, to reject Him or to receive Him, to respond to Him. Um, quickly, you take you, you, the most dramatic picture is in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that instantaneously, they became rock stupid because they thought they could go hide in the trees and God wouldn't know where they were. They recognized that they were, their shame uh, recognized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together to make a covering for themselves. Okay, you know what? In this whole world, in this entire world, there's only two clothing chains, okay? Everybody walking the streets, everybody, is either clothed with the robe that God gave us of righteousness, or if you want to stick with Adam and Eve's time, the skins of animals that were sacrificed on their behalf that God, it said, gave to them to cover them. So we're either, we're either covered with the cloak of God's righteousness through Christ or we're, we've got nothing but fig leaves, okay? Now, how do I say that? Why do I say that? Because everybody's got a conscience. I don't care how much they claim they don't know. I didn't know that was wrong. Yeah, you did. You do, you do too. Um, we're, we're liars. <laughs> when we're away from God. Oh, I, I didn't know that was wrong. No, I don't feel bad. Yeah, you do. You're lying through your miserable teeth, okay? So what, are we, what is that? That's a fig leaf. I'm sewing together a covering so I can hide my shame. It doesn't work. So that's why God gave them a, another set of clothing <laughs> to cover them. Um, what God did that moment is number one 
even though they had fallen from their righteous state, they were now shameful. They were afraid of God. They they ran and tried to hide. One, he, he set out after them. Adam and Eve never sought God once after they sinned. They didn't say, oh man, God, what in the world have we done? They went and hid, made this fake covering to, you know, sad their conscience. God's the one that set out after them. And he called out, he says, where are you guys? Two things he called out, where are you and what'd you do? God has a tendency to cut to the chase, you know? He's not a, uh, he doesn't beat around the bush. Where are you? What'd you do? Well, they, you know, of course, we know the story. Blamed it on each other. Blamed it on the devil. You know, devil made me do it. All kinds of stuff. Um, but the fact that God came after them and that as he called to them, they recognized God's voice. They knew who it was. Okay? They still retained because God immediately supplied for them grace to restore their ability to recognize God's voice. We now call that a conscience. Um, He also gave them, restored to them, the ability to respond to him because he carried on a conversation with them. And he asked them, tell me the reasons you did this. So he treated them as people that were free will agents and treated them as people who understood what was going on. The only reason they had an understanding and the only reason they had the power to con- uh, you know, conceive of God and recognize his voice, respond to him, um, and choose was because, because God gave back to them the same thing we all have, and that is the ability to respond to him, the ability to recognize his voice, the ability to recognize we're naked, that we recognize shame, we recognize guilt. All of those things God embedded in us as, in a sense, what he can appeal to to draw me back to him. Now, once the Garden of Eden occurred, God has been in a rescue mission from that day to this to draw us back to him. Um, The only way he could do that after we so damaged ourselves morally was to, as a free gift, restore to us the ability to recognize him, to hear his voice, to feel shame, to know right from wrong, to know what is good, and he put within us a certain desire to be better. Everybody knows about that. People claim, you know, I don't know this is wrong, I don't think that's wrong, I can do what I want. Then don't make any resolutions. You know, don't make any, I'm going to be better. There's no such thing as better. We're all fine. No, it's a lie. We know. We know what we ought to be, and we know what we are. Where do we get that knowledge? It's a gift from God. He's put that in our hearts. And he's given us the ability to respond to him. Now, since God gave us that ability to respond, I will therefore be totally accountable for what my response is. I can't blame God for it. That was the foundational Christian doctrine 
that the Wesleys preached, which had never died out, but it had been overshadowed in England and a lot of, the, of Europe by Calvinism, which taught Seth before Seth was born, before Adam and Eve even ate the apple. God decided Seth, Farnsworth, and we, I think we let you in heaven once, didn't we, Jim? We'll do it again. Those two guys are going to get saved. The rest of you, you're, you're unredeemable. God didn't even plan, and he didn't give you any grace. So the Wesleys preaching what, uh, again, a doctrine that never had died out, but it had been overshadowed, that everyone is given as a free gift enough grace to know there's a God, to have a hunger for him, to know I'm not right, I'm not living right, to sense shame, and to hear God's still small voice and respond to it. That's all made possible by what we call prevenient grace. It's the grace that is in place uh, before we even know it. And it's how God tugs at our hearts and keeps us um, salvageable. Um, if that's our conscience, if he didn't give us a conscience, we would be unredeemable. We'd be so evil, so black, so hard-hearted, we wouldn't, we couldn't be saved, okay? So, in England at that time, that was a pretty radical doctrine. Everybody can be saved? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the third doctrine, which was, is, again, a, not a novel doctrine, but it's just called the witness of the Spirit, or assurance. In other words, I can know I'm saved, and that's when they said, they felt, these guys are nuts, um, um, you're saved because you're baptized as an infant and you're written in the church book that you were baptized. And it's kind of like, one, you know, I got, I got water on me once and I don't need any more. And I'm fine. Go to church, take communion, make sure I do that. Throw a, whatever they would call it over there, you know. Um, a guinea or I don't even know. Throw it in the offering, you're good. Um, that was their notion of Christianity. The Wesleys preached, now there's a, it's, I, I think I told you last week, in the just crowded, bustling sidewalk on London is, was this thing is probably a good 10 feet tall, wide, kind of a ribbon-like thing as a, as a scroll unrolled, was Wesley's testimony when he went to this little Bible study, and he says about he says about a quarter to nine, as they were reading Book of Romans, the just shall live by faith, were saved by faith. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I knew that my sins were forgiven. I was reconciled to God. Well, that no so religion is called in Romans the witness of the Spirit. And so they emphasize that. You need to be converted, and when you are, you'll know it. You'll remember it. So that was a third emphasis of the Wesleys, which again brought them. Uh, Prevenient grace didn't bother them too much because the, uh, the Church of England didn't deny that. In fact, Catholicism believes in prevenient grace. So that's a not, it's not an unknown doctrine. 
Um, but the witness of the Spirit was really radical. Nobody can know that. You, your baptismal certificate's good enough. You're, that's all you're going to know. Um, so that got him into trouble. And then, of course, the, the, the next doctrine that, again, was a doctrine that had always been, never been stamped out, but often um, among a minority. And that was taken from First Thessalonians, entire sanctification, which is First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, that God can not only forgive us of the sins we have personally committed, but that he can also cleanse our hearts of the bent to sinning that we're all born with. Now, I've gone over it enough that I, I, I'll keep it as brief as I possibly can. There is no Christian denomination, period, maybe one, that doesn't believe well, I could say probably there isn't anybody, unless they're wackos, okay? Anybody that's even remotely within the Christian believes we're born with a sinful nature. We're born with a bent to sinning. Now, you don't need a theology degree. All you need is at least one kid or a nephew or a grandson or somebody, and you will see what inbred sin and the bent to sinning is all about. That will they, they exhibit it before they can even talk. Okay? Fighting over two toys when they're surrounded by 90. Where's that come from? It's that one of the best definitions of the inherited bent to sinning, the sinful nature, is an excessive love of self. Okay? We're supposed to love ourselves. Jesus said so. The only measure I have to know how I ought to love you is like myself. So it's right. But like everything that God created, the devil twists it and bloats it and wrecks it. So the natural love of self that God created in us has been infected and bloated and warped to where it's excessive. Okay? Now what does that mean? My opinions and my schedules, my ambitions matter more than Dan barks. It push comes to shove. And so what are we going to have? We're going to butt heads. I don't care if it's a marriage. I don't care if it's at work. I don't care if it's a school. I don't care. There is a, actually, in the Revolutionary War, knowing it or not, I'm sure they didn't think about it, that Revolutionary War flag flaps over every single human heart. Don't tread on me. Don't you tell me what to do. It's my rights, my opinions, my ambitions, my feelings, my plans. And I may concede to you, well, you get your way this time, but I'm keeping score. So that next time, you got your way last time. We don't forget. That's embedded in the heart. That's why we have all the mess we got. And ultimately, when I have such an excessive love of self and self-rule, self-will, you know who my greatest enemy ends up being? 
not the other guy. They are our enemies. We'll butt heads with them. But the creator of the universe who made me, who demands that I love him with my whole heart, he becomes the greatest threat to my autonomy because he demands loyalty to him. So that's a mess. The human heart, well, nobody put it better than God when Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful beyond anything known and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can, what human can even realize the depths of it? Now, Wesley preached that doctrine which had been since the New Testament, um, clean hands and a pure heart, that God could save us, but he could also purify our heart, so that our, the spontaneous inclination of the human heart was now to love God, to serve him. Questions of serving God become more, uh, become what is his will, not whether I'll follow it. You know, it's not whether I'll obey God. It's just what does he want me to do? What, what's his leading? I don't care what it is. I want to do it. Um, so those doctrines <clears throat> that of free will, of prevenient grace, and along with that universal salvation, everybody has a chance to come to God. It's not a select few. Um, and the notion that God can purify from our hearts the bent that we're all born with uh, were the Methodist doctrines, okay? Now, <clears throat> they were um, the Wesleys encountered rising amount, um, widespread amount of pushback, okay? Um, and it was pretty normal for the Wesleys to be mobbed. Very frequently they were mobbed. Um, rocks, a very, all, all kinds of various rotten vegetables. Um, they used to, they, when, they would, when they were outside, which was more and more frequent, um, when they were preaching outdoors, um, the press gangs would attack the crowd. You know what the press gangs were? Anybody know what the press gangs? Press gangs were, um, it was a draft board in England. But, um, I mean, they would just, they see a, if they're around, if they see some, you know, strapping for them, six foot was huge, some six foot, 17-year-old kid, the press gang would induct them into the army involuntarily, <laughs> okay? Well, they would go attack Wesley's crowds, which would cause them to scatter. They would stand at the edge, literally, they would stand at the outer edges, and they would blow horns, they would scream and yell and carry on. They would um, do their best to get, they get a bull from some farmer nearby and get it to try to stampede into the crowd. Um, it was just wild. Um, was England, yeah. And um, Wesley was small. 
most people were. I think the average height was like 5'6", five, 5'7", five, then. Six foot was huge. Um, Wesley was probably 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. Um, very slight. I don't know the, uh, I've never looked it up. His journal talks about him weighing um, a stone and a half. I don't know what, anyway. I never figured out what it is, but he's probably 100 pounds. I don't know, 120. Anyway, one, one of hundreds of cases told about um, a mob grabbed him and, and he was staying in a house that would allow the Methodist preachers, including Wesley, to be there. And for hosting him, the townspeople started taking the siding off the house, okay, um, tearing it down. Um, he didn't want that to happen, so he goes out and he meets with the crowd and he tries to calm them down. Um, and, you know, it went back and forth and finally it kind of roared up again. And so they grabbed Wesley and they were going to take him down, throw him off a bridge into the local river. And so he said a butcher woman um, who was big because they would, you know, they'd, they would have to take a big hammer or whatever and knock a cow out, and, you know, and she's heaving around a half a beef. So she just got him under one arm and had a meat cleaver in the other one and was just hacking her way through the crowd to get him to safety in the butcher shop, okay? Um, and when, he, when it got all done... Um, they all, well, he ended up going back out and preaching to them. And he always, and he wrote in his journal, he says, here's how you deal with the mob. Uh, figure out who seems to be the ringleader or leaders. Go right up to them. He says, look them right in the face. Talk to them directly. Um, I, I doubt it worked. It was just God. <laughs> you know what I mean? But. He went out, looked and, you know, said, what exactly have I, have I done to you? Well, you know, the guy couldn't, you know, he didn't know. Why are you here? Well, everybody, you know, they calmed down. He just goes back on the steps, ends up preaching to him for half an hour. Um, and in his journal, he said, the only thing I lost was the half of one tail of, you know, his swallowtail coat, tore off one half of that and said, that's all I lost. You know, God's work went forward. Um, that was virtually a daily occurrence with all of them. Um, what happened then was revival broke out. In all these little towns, people would get converted. And out of them, there would be guys that would be called to preach. And so Wesley began having um, barely educated lay preachers. They weren't clergymen. They weren't ordained in the Church of England. They would just, um, this is a bit later in his life, but they would read his sermons and Charles Wesley's hymns, and that was their theology, and um, he, would, he would give them charge over that little village. They would be the, the Methodist preacher there, okay? Um, and it just took off. One little village he went in fairly, not a super small, but one village he'd been going to for 30 years or so. And he did a circuit. He went, it took him almost a year. And he'd go all the way up the east coast of England. He'd go in, zigzag into the center. But he'd, he'd work his way all the way around, go to Scotland, go to Ireland, Wales, 
work his way back down across the bottom of England, then come back and go to London. And then he'd spend the worst months of the winter in London preaching around there. And as soon as winter broke, he'd go his circuit again. In his lifetime, um, it's estimated he preached a minimum of 50,000 times. He averaged pretty close to three times a day, seven days a week. Um, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 miles on horseback. Um, and that's, so the Methodist church, to this day, their preachers are called itinerant elders. And itinerant means you travel. I mean, you, now, we don't ride horses around the country like that anymore. But it means that you are kept at a church until you, if your gifts are such and such and that church needs them, we'll put you there. You don't get voted on. You don't candidate for it. You don't write letters and try to finagle it. The, the bishop says you go there. Um, and when he thinks you've done the job you can do and he's got a place over here that needs you, he says, okay, I need you over here and you go, okay? I grew up under that and I pastored for, what, 40-some, 40 45 years under that system. I like it. Um, it can be upheaval, but it's usually not bad. But anyway, um, so let me, let me kind of... Um, look here at the methods then that Wesley used. Um, lots of writing, uh, lots of, in that day they wrote tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, um, little flyers. And they, that was how, you know, you had no media other than that. And spoken word, that was it. And so the Calvinists would write a letter and they'd say, well, John Wesley's a rat. And then Wesley, he, now one thing about Wesley, he never sunk to that, their level. He was really careful about never uh, speaking evil. Um, and God marvelously, uh, you know, took care of him there. He would stick to the subject, never got off onto, well, yeah, but, you know, you dress funny too. Um, he didn't get into the little insults. Um, and... <clears throat> By the way, this, I won't waste too much time on this. How many of you know the hymn, Rock of Ages? Some of you, some of you have told you this. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide my you know, self in thee. Anyway, Rock of Ages is a hymn written by a guy named Augustus Toplady, and Augustus Toplady despised the Wesleys, okay? So Rock of Ages was written against the doctrine of universal offer of salvation to everybody and in favor of predestination. Few were picked, the rest of them were going to hell, okay? Nobody knows that today. Um, but if you know it, the words through that hymn makes sense. Um, could, my, could my zeal, now these are old, this is 1700s language. Could my zeal no languor know? Languor is laziness, you know. Could my zeal 
work for God? Could my zeal no longer know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's five-point Calvinism. That's, so in other words, any works, and I will probably go in next week. Um, works is by the Calvinists, that's works. That's, that's Catholic. In other words, earning your salvation. Put $5 in the offering, you might make it to heaven, put 25000 you're for sure going there. Um, and I help at the church, and I do this, and counting all those things as works is looked on as work salvation, which the Bible says we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. But many have carried the not saved by works to a ridiculous extreme that if you work for God, if you're, you volunteer and you help in the nursery and teach Sunday school, whatever, you're trying, that's works. So you don't, you're not supposed to do anything that would smack of works. So that's why Top Lady writes, could my zeal for God no, never flag, never sink? Could my zeal no longer, no, could my tears forever flow? The idea of weepingly seeking for God because your heart's broken that you've sinned against God and your, his frown is on you. You don't need to do that because he's the one that decides who gets saved and he makes sure that the ones he's decided are going to get saved will get saved. So you don't, you don't seek God. You don't need to. He'll take care of it. None of these, it says, these could, for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Okay? Um, there's such fireworks that went back in tracts all the time. Augustus' top lady died at about age 37. Sudden death. Well, the buddies, the, the Calvinists, <laughs> spread the rumor that John Wesley was basically doing hopscotches on the sidewalk because Augustus' top lady dropped dead, okay? Which was not the case. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that went back and forth. And it was in the major papers, too. Religion was still high as a subject. And um, so Wesley methodology, he communicated, he had a, a magazine called the Arminian Magazine, which was post-Galvinism. Um, anyway, music was a huge, huge area that the Wesleys got their message out. Charles Wesley... Um, and you know, we look at it today, and I'm, I obviously can't get into all this, but we have today what we call the worship wars. You know, do you have contemporary music? Do you have just hymns? Do you have a blend? Um, no, nobody can win in any of it, it seems like. Um, but Charles Wesley, remember this, you're dealing in many cases with a highly illiterate society. The, the poor couldn't read. But Charles Wesley was a poet, uh, incredible poet, um, an incredible musician. Plus, some people, contemporaries from that day, have read that Charles Wesley could preach better than John could. But at any rate, um, 
he wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 7,000 hymns, poems, so forth. Um, set them to music. And here's, here's what he did. He took pub tunes. What they, you know, how dry I am. He took that and put religious words to it. He knew they knew the tune. They weren't having to think about that. And so he took common, ordinary, known tunes and set Christian words to them and then taught them. Um, they, I don't know how many hymnals they published. I've got a couple of really old, well, 1800s. I got an 1850 um, Methodist hymnal in my office. And it's probably that thick. And the print, you, you go stone blind within a half an hour trying to read it. Um, there's no music in it. It's only the words. And then um, just two letters, code letters, CM, SM, RD, whatever. And it means a tune. And they would sing... Um, lots of different words and lots of different songs to the same tune. And so um, they always started their little services they, when they were preaching out in the streets. They would just sing out of the hymnal and then they'd, you know, then, then they would preach. Um, so the method was publishing a lot of writing, music, um, itinerant preaching. Of course, Wesley started it um, and Charles, but it was quick that more and more people would, would get converted and then they would, um, maybe they, they would, he would assign them to be kind of the leader of the little band of Methodists in their little village, okay? And then as more people got saved and the group grew larger, then they would start, he'd tell this guy, okay, three miles down the road or two miles down the road is this other little village and there's some people over there that came to my preaching and wherever and they gave their hearts to Jesus and they need somebody to watch over them so you're going to be you stay here in your village and you're a shoemaker or whatever but you take care of that village over there too okay so there was a web developed all over England now Wesley preached for 50 years um 1738 to 1788. Uh, actually, a couple years more than that. Um, but he, in his journal, he always prayed, or he always wrote, I want to lay down my work and my life at the same time. I mean, I don't want to live a day beyond. If I can't preach, I don't want to be here. Um, he preached up until a week before he died, got sick, went to bed, died. Um, now, so itinerant preaching, they um, went all over the nation. Um, <clears throat> the key, though, and I'll quit with this because we can't get um, completely done. And we'll finish it up next week. But the key, Wesley is studied today, to this day. If you just get on the, um, today, just to get some other people's viewpoints, I just typed in John Wesley's class meetings. Well, I mean, there's page after page after page of stuff on John Wesley's class meetings. Um, we call them small groups, okay? 
But we act like, you know, in the 1980s, we discovered small groups, and isn't that great? We'd invented it. Um, it's been around for a while. But Wesley insisted there were, there were th- kind of three levels. The, oh, well. The society. Okay? Now, I can't explain this because we don't live in it. Everybody in England, whether they liked it or not, unless they were just hopeless down and outers, was already a member of the Church of England by being born. (laughs) Okay? You're born, you have a parish you're born into. The they didn't have a courthouse where your birth certificate your birth certificate was the local parish church. And its membership book was the official nation's ledger and record of everybody born in England. That was church and state, okay? So, um, <clears throat> Wesley never left the, the Church of England. None of the Methodists were not Church of England. So, you didn't have a church. You didn't call the Methodists a church. They're a society within the Church of England, just like in Catholicism, the Dominicans, the Augustinians, the Jesuits, the, the Franciscans, they are societies within the Catholic Church. Okay? They're all Catholics, but I may be an Augustinian Catholic, Franciscan. Okay? So, Wesley used the term society. That was for anybody that was involved in Methodism at all. Come here and preach, whatever. If you professed to be converted and you, you could point to a time when you got saved, then he put you in what was called a class. You were required to go to the class once a week. Okay, And he broke the class down to where the class was usually 12, 14 people. Okay? And then beyond the class, he had what were called bands. Okay? B-A-N-D-S. Um, and they would be for a particular need. One band would be in a local area all of the class leaders. Every class had a leader appointed by Wesley, okay? They ran the class meeting. You had to go to the class meeting. Here's what you did at the class meeting. I'm not going to read very much of this, but um, there were rules, um, you know, rules for what you did at the class meeting. Um, They were to meet once a week, Come punctually at the hour appointed without some extraordinary reason. In other words, he, Wesley said being on time was next to godliness. So if you're late, could be hell. Um, come punctually. Begin, those of you who are present exactly at the hour, with singing or prayer. To speak, each of us in order, freely and plainly, the true state of our soul with the faults we have committed in thought, word, and deed, and the temptations we felt since our last meeting. 
Okay? Now, any of you who've grown up like I am and I'm back before they, you know, when they just discovered fire, um, testimony services in church, okay, that, that's where this came from. We don't do that anymore because we don't do a lot of things anymore. Um, but at any rate, um, so this was small group where you bared your soul and told people, okay, you know, I, I yelled at the kids or whatever, I don't know, but whatever, you know, um, you confessed to each other so that they could each pray for each other. Um, he threatened them with hell fire if they breathed a word of what anybody said out of the meeting, you know. Now, you, when I was in when I was in seminary, we used to. The joke was, it's a prayer prayer concern. Gossip was a prayer concern. You know what I mean? It's. Uh, no, I'm not passing it. Pray for them, because here's what they did. You understand? Um, so Wesley just shook them over hell if they ever told anybody. And is routinely. I happen to read today, but I've read hundreds of times in his journal. He would say, I went to uh, Newcastle upon the Tyne River, found that there were 900 members in the society, spent three days, he said, when I left, there were 400 members in the society. He kicked them out. And the only way you could get in, the only way you could come to a class meeting is if you had a ticket that he originally he or his brother signed. So you couldn't even get in to the small group unless they felt, and, and here's, here's the requirement to get in of anything that Wesley did. To come to any of the meetings other than the preaching, that's out in the fields or wherever, and that's fine. But he said, the only people allowed are those, he said, who desire, quoting First Thessalonians, flee the wrath to come and to find their sins forgiven. If you didn't have that as, the, as your core issue, don't bother. Man, we're dead backwards. Today, I don't care what, you know. We, we want everybody. We don't want to bother anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to. You had to, Wesley just routinely cleaned house all the time. Maybe this, there's a quote, I think. Um, yeah, he talks about if you've got somebody that's a problem, you know, um, if they break the rules and all this and they, they don't attend like they should and whatever. Um, he said, we will admonish him of the error of his ways. We will bear with him for a season, for a while. But then if he repenteth not, he hath no more place among us. We have delivered him. We, we've delivered our own souls. He's done. Now, if they ever straighten up and come back, he'd let them back. But you told the liner you were out. And it grew like mad. And what do we do today? We beg, cajole, get on our faces and plead and bawl and wring our hands for anybody to come. And we're dying. <laughs> All across the country. Church attendance is like this. It costs nothing to be a Christian. That day, of course... Not only would Wesley throw you out, but the neighbors might burn your house down, <laughs> literally. Um, or go get the constable and try to arrest you. So um, it costs them 
something. Now, we got to quit, um, and so I'll finish um, more of the, he had special, he, he wrote rules for um, the class meetings, how long they should last, that everyone prayed, everyone confessed each other where they needed prayer or, you know, whatever, um, and then you, um, I, we'll give you one more. I have a book called, what's it called? Sod House something or other. And it's the mid-1800s uh, in Nebraska. Okay, as they settled Nebraska and were building sod houses, you know, there was no trees, no wood, no nothing. Um, anyway, they, they had religion. There's a chapter in it on religion. Well, this was in the 1850s. In America in the 1850s, I'm jumping way ahead. One in three people who were associated with a church were Methodists. The Methodists just blew the country away, okay? And there, there was a local, you know, local newspapers that had everything from what the crops were to, you know, all that. But in the, I don't know what they called it, but a number of places where the impact of religion on the community, that was the theme of that chapter, so-and-so, it says, long known for, you know, um, drinking spirits, you know, or whatever, um, was saved, saved at the uh, revival meeting at the Methodist church, and last report from his wife, he's joined the Methodist class meeting, okay? Um, that was a requirement. If you were going to stay in the Methodist, you had to be in a small group, and you had to go, and you had to prove you were there. And, and if you didn't toe the line, I mean, if that particular guy, whoever he was, if he gets back on the bottle and anybody saw him, then they'd sit down with him and say, now listen, we don't do that. And you're a Methodist, and you're carrying the Methodist name and Christ's name, and so you shape up. We'll help you, we'll pray for you, we'll love you, we'll do everything else, but you, you got you know, two weeks or you're out. Um, that was one of the keys to um, massive impact that um, Methodism had, not only in England, but then here, and then, of course, around the world. Um, we'll, we'll take a good portion of next week to finish up because... Um, as it grew in England, then you have in the 18 or in the 17 um, late 60s was when the first Methodists ended up coming over here to England or coming over to America. And then John Wesley sent a guy by the name of Francis Asbury um, over here to America. And Asbury probably doubled the mileage. It's estimated he wrote, rode 250,000 miles. Um, and when I was a superintendent back in Indiana, and I had churches in Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio, um, Michigan and Indiana, I, I, would go, I would go down, especially into Kentucky, um, had a church almost to Tennessee. And you go down there, there's all these rivers, Cumberland River, Kentucky River, um, that show up in Francis Asbury's journal of where, and I'd, you, I'd look down at just, you know, that's pretty rugged country. I'd look down there and I, I would think often, how did he, 
how did he even get a horse through there? Um, it was amazing what they clawed their way through to find a little a little settlement and there are two log cabins and Asbury preached to them. And, um, just one last thing and then I will shut up. Francis Asbury was so well known in America that in the real, he died in 1816. In the late 1700s after the Revolutionary War, people in England or wherever or here in America could write a letter to Francis Asbury and all they did, they would just say, Francis Asbury, N.A., North America. Whether it was England, France, Germany, America, that's all they had to put on it. He got it. Everybody, his journal talks about having dinner with George Washington and him kind of getting on George Washington about being godly. You know, we need to get rid of the gambling, we need to get rid of the gin houses, you know what I mean? He didn't care. It, frankly, what it makes me feel like when I read all that, the boldness they had, the suffering that they had, the, the rejection that they got, I feel like I just probably need to sell all my books and retire because I amount to nothing compared to those guys. They were amazing. Um, but anyway, that, that waits for next week. Okay, um, let's pray. Yes. No, never came back. They, they, in fact, they came over here to minister to the Indians and be missionaries to them before they even knew what it meant to be saved. And uh, yeah, no, they never came back. Okay, Father in heaven, thank you for the history that we can study. And Lord, all the people that have gone before us. And honestly, Lord, I feel often, I feel ashamed at how relatively to those people, how really pretty insipid we are. Um, and they endured a lot. So I pray that just even the study of this would encourage our own hearts to um, be the kind of people we ought to be and leave no doubt as to where where we're headed and what we stand for. Dismiss us with your grace and safety, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.